the year is 1971, and we are the podcast makers. We are the dreamers of dreams. The movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. everyone and welcome to unspooled i am paul Shear, and i am joined as always by my amazing co-host the famed <laughs> the amazing the brilliant writer for the new york times amy nicholson film critic extraordinaire i know you are but what am i <laughs> mr magical man <laughs> well we have been talking about Gene Wilder films. We've been doing this Gene Wilder trifecta that I have just so loved. I have too. And I think that it really brought me back to how much I miss Gene Wilder. Because Gene Wilder was such a big part in my life. And it started with this film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. This is one of those films when I was a kid that was on rotation all the time. And looking into this film a little bit deeper... There's so much to unpack here. This is a really wonderful movie that I think really pulls in a lot of what we love about Gene Wilder into perhaps the perfect package. I mean, this is a movie that I find delightful, delicious, and a story about capitalism, socialism, commercialism, heaven, hell, Wonka. My God, what a titanic figure. What a terrifying figure. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about the idea, do we need more movies like this? Weird, dark movies. Kids need to be frightened. And the kids on this movie were frightened by Gene Wilder. So as we wrap up our Gene Wilder trilogy, I think we're going to get into a lot of the things. Do we need to remake everything? Is Gene Wilder the only person that could play this? And do we need to scare the shit out of kids and teach them to obey or die? And Amy, <laughs> without any further ado, let me take out my flute and let's unspool it. The year is 1971 and Quaker Oats has agreed to something wildly out of character for a hundred-year-old oatmeal company. They are funding a movie, the entire thing, and they don't know anything about making movies, and they're barely even interested in visiting the set in Germany, all that matters is that the film serves as a hard launch for the company's new side hustle, selling chocolate bars. This was not Quaker Oats's idea. The idea came from an 11-year-old girl who told her dad, Mel Stewart, that he should direct a movie about the book that she just read, Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, Stuart explains to his daughter, honey, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I make films about the Third Reich. And his daughter does not care. She's very insistent. So his longtime producer, David L. Wolper, finds out about this. He happens to know that the Quaker Oats guys are looking to get into the chocolate game. And David goes to them. And thus, this very, very weird non-studio outsider project slash commercial begins to get into gear. Now, the movie is renamed Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which we'll get into in a little bit. And Roald Dahl agrees to write the script, but just kind of just sends in like a detailed outline that covers most of the main plot. A good boy named Charlie 
Peter Ostrom wins a contest. He gets a tour of Secretive Chocolate Factory with a bunch of other really nasty kids who all get dispatched in nasty ways. I mean, whenever Willy Wonka's around, no one is safe. Kids get sucked into pipes, turned into blueberries, pixelated and shrunken, and scream as the ground splits open underneath them and they plummet into a furnace. The real uncredited writer, David Seltzer, adds a bunch of stuff, and we'll get into that as well. But after some tension, Dahl signs off on this Seltzer script and tells everyone that while he is okay with the movie, he does not like the actor playing our Willy Wonka, which, of course, is Gene Wilder. Willy Wonka opens on June 30th, 1971, and it flops. Quaker Oats launches their chocolate bars, and they flop. They literally melt before they make it on shelves because the chocolate formula they used is way too soft. Doesn't work out. They don't care about the movie. They don't care about their chocolate bars. But then when Paramount's distribution rights lapsed a couple years later, Paramount was like, nobody cares about this movie. They did not even bother to renew Willy Wonka and hold ownership of it. So how did we get from there, this flop movie about some flop chocolate made by guys who do not make children's movies, to here, beloved classic, movie I adore, movie whose reboot is dead to me? That is a lot to talk about, and we'll be talking about it here. But now what you really want to know is what was on the radio June 30th, 1971. Well, it too is a song about a man who is dangerous to be around, and when he's around, anything can happen. It is Carol King, and I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the earth move under my feet. I love it. I love it. And I feel like Veruca Salt would appreciate it as the earth did move under her feet and send her into that furnace like we mentioned a little bit ago. You're right, man. I just want to hear the Augustus Gloop version. I feel the chocolate bubble under my feet. I feel this tube shooting me out, shooting me out. Oh, I love a so-paced parody (laughs) song. Uh, I am blown away, Amy, that this is one of your favorite films. But I guess maybe thinking about it, It makes sense. I mean, these kids are being tortured. They're being hurt. Uh, There's a a very kind of cool electric 70s weird film vibe going here. It's it's very independent. It's a kid's movie, but it's an anti-kid's movie. I think rewatching it, it made me think about Roald Dahl, obviously a known anti-Semite. But beyond that, he does make interesting stories where... The kids are often at odds with the adults in the world, and the adults in the world aren't often right. Yeah, I have always really liked the way that Roald Dahl paints that feeling of being a child, that the world is not necessarily fair, that you know people are not necessarily kind, and that to seize power sometimes requires adamant things. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the new version of Matilda that came out recently on Netflix, which is actually quite good. Highly recommend the new musical of Matilda. Yeah. And I am thinking about how my big gripe with kids' movies is that they make the world of childhood so kind and soft and nostalgic. They talk about childhood the way that they wish it was. Even the new Judy Bloom movie does that. It's about how they wish childhood had gone. And, the, and they make... You are still holding on to this Judy Bloom movie. I'm still holding a grudge about it. They make Margaret a little bit too nice for me. They, they make her much nicer than the book, and I don't like it. And, and Wonka would never do that. Like, this movie is... Cruel, strict, stern, 
and I believe fairly truthful about human existence. My God, am I morbid? Or did maybe this movie just shaped me? I think it shaped all of us. I, I remember watching this movie so many times as a kid. It felt like there weren't that many films to watch when I was a kid that were for kids. And this one really imprinted on my brain. And I think I've always viewed this movie as a good movie with boring parts. And rewatching it now, I'm like, oh, I think this is actually a really good movie. It just is not structurally the same as other films. And I do think that two-thirds of the music in it suck. Whoa. Yeah. Coming out hot. Yeah, I don't like the music in this movie. What? I like the music once they get to the chocolate factory. Everything before the chocolate factory can be jettisoned to the curb. You don't like the Candyman can? I Tell like you it. at least like the Sammy Davis Jr. version of the Candyman. I mean, this is the song that went number one. Candyman. Wow. I'm not anti-Candyman. I just feel like... You hate candy? No, it just is not the tone of this movie. Like, the movie is weird and dark and funny. And this song is so saccharine. It's like, oh, he's pouring the candy around the candy shop. I I don't know. It, it In many ways, maybe it's a great song to open with because it leads you in a different direction of where the movie will be going. But I, I really feel like these opening songs, the song with the the mom. Oh, cheer up, Charlie. Yeah, I'm done. I like if you cheer pulled, up drags. I'll give you that. If you pulled the first four songs out, I'm happy. I love what it becomes, but I feel like they had songs for the back half and they're like, oh, we gotta figure out how to get songs for the front half because this movie isn't even really a musical. I wouldn't even call what the Oompa Loompas do as musical numbers. It's like a forced musical. It's become more of a musical. Spoken word Oompa Loompas. Well, the forced works in a way because like Stuart, the director, did not want this to be a musical and was sort of convinced to do it, was convinced that like, if you want a big hit, man, if you want to make like a sound of music, man, you got to have musicals. And they were trying to get him to at one point have like a giant musical number when Charlie gets the ticket and all of the village people run into the street and they're like, he got the ticket. And like a thousand random shopkeepers just burst into song and dance. And he was like, absolutely not. If anything is going to kick us out of this fantastically insane movie where wallpaper is lickable, it is a giant musical number. I will draw the line on that. And I think that that is what I've always had a problem with. I could never really articulate when I was a kid. I was like, oh, this is the boring part. I want to get to the chocolate factory. And when you rewatch it now, all the little moments, like the workers opening up all the, you know, all the candy bars. When you meet Mike TV, who's such a dick, uh, you know, like like the newscasters, the, the therapist in the therapist's office, like all that stuff is so fun and the pacing of it is so strong that it does feel like these musical numbers were inserted and they're not great. Look, I agree with you. The Candyman is a catchy song. It worked, obviously, for Sammy Davis. It's a fine song here. If they only had this song, I would have been happy. I still am fast-forwarding it. But it's sort of like the rest of the songs aren't good songs. They're not Broadway musical songs. And it's hard, I think, to make a, a movie musical without any source material, because that that work is hard work to do to get a great Broadway tune. Matilda, which you mentioned, was 
you know, on West End and on Broadway. I saw it there. It was amazing. And Tim Minchin is like amazing at writing songs. It's like, this is not that. It doesn't feel like it has that. But I like it. I like it. I like it. I mean, you are correct. I'll I'll start with the part where you're correct. This is not a three-act movie. You know, there's no rise and fall. Like if there was a three-act movie, he'd be getting to the Chocolate Factory in Act 2. This is like a two-act movie. It's 45 minutes until the clock finally strikes and Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka emerges into the movie for the very first time, you know, limping and looking kind of harsh at the crowd. And then he does the brainstorm that that uh, Gene Wilder said he had to do if he was even going to agree to play this character, which was he turns his limp into a somersault. Everybody is surprised. And he says, from that moment on, I'm establishing that you can never trust this character. Which is the thing I like about him, because I would say, yeah, we've got our movies where like the adults are nice people way too much of the time. We've got our villains in movies who are like really villainous. And you're just like, well, that's clearly a bad person. They're wearing dark purple. They have a mustache. Everything about them is pointy. Avoid that guy. That guy's bad. But it's very rare in a kid's movie that you have somebody like Willy Wonka, where it's like, I don't know if I can trust him, where I don't know what to think about him. And that insecurity about an adult is this adult safe or not? That driving question is so rare. And that's yeah. terrifying. It's, it would almost be more secure if you knew he was bad. Well, let me pose this question to you. Is Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory a horror movie? I think so. We have this creepy house, aka Chocolate Factory, where kids are getting killed by the weird instruments inside. It's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you have this not unreliable narrator, but you have this person very much like that movie Ma uh, that came out a little while ago uh, where you don't know exactly what he's doing. Like if Jordan Peele made this, I'd be like, yeah, man, this is fucking twisted. This is weird. This is an adult weird movie about a guy who, you know, wants to kill children in a weird way. He did make the candy man. (laughs) Let's just agree that for the course of this podcast, we're going to refer to all the kids as killed. Okay. I'm sure that deep down they did squeeze all the juice out of her and Mike TV stretched into taffy. I want them to be dead. No, he does say at the end, don't worry about the kids. They're fine. They'll all be like, there's something interesting about that. Let's say killed. Okay, we'll say killed. I do believe that that's a line that somebody made them add at the last hour because it makes the character a little bit more digestible because Gene Wilder has killed a bunch of children and is so undisturbed by it uh, that at the end he's like, oh, no, no, they're not, they're not killed. And so I think you you agree to like him a little bit more. And then it also, I think, does soften his character for his final reveal. Like he isn't an evil person. He just is a person who I think in many ways is upset with society and how we've become this society kind of fueled by like the seven deadly sins, right? Like the greed and lust and envy. Like that's what I kind of feel that these kids represent. So you are going with the Marilyn Manson definition of Willy Wonka as being Literally Satan, that his job is to tempt everyone by saying, here's good and here's evil, here's righteousness and here's sin, and then watching everybody pick sin. Oh, no. I think that (laughs) that is, I think that that is a little too dark. No, I don't think that he's Satan. I don't think he's a bad guy at all. I actually think he's a wonderful person who actually loves what he's doing and wants to give the world's children happiness through chocolate and lickable wallpaper. like. But what I think he also feels 
is the lack of appreciation. And when I look at a kid who can't take his face away from a screen, I look at, you know, the way that people talk about our children now, like, oh, they're attached to their screens. Oh, they want this stuff. You know, when we were talking to Adam McKay, he talked about limbic economy, like whatever we want, we buy. You know, it's like it's right there on an app. And and this movie does capture this way that we all are and the way that we can all become. And and I think what Willy Wonka represents is a simplicity. Like, remember when a bar of chocolate was just the ultimate treat? And that's what obviously Charlie Buckets actually can, you know, see eye to eye with him about. No, you know what it is? Willy Wonka isn't Satan. He's Old Testament God. I was going to say that. Yes, yes. He's God creating the ark and being like, all the rest of y'all are dead. Charlie gets on the ark. I'll let grandpa get on the ark. My Oompa Loompas are getting on the ark. Everybody else, you're drowning in my chocolate flood. And, you know, that's a classic story, man. We revere that God and we revere Willy Wonka. But 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 I also think that what he's trying to do is find someone who is true of heart, right? Because in a weird way, Willy Wonka is the ultimate celebrity. No one knows what he looks like or they haven't seen him in years. And he knows that he can't trust anyone because people well, will he lie. Was Jack Nicholson until Jack Nicholson emerged to go to Laker games again. And help them win. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I do believe that there is this energy around him of who can I trust? Who is the person? Because what we find out at the end of the movie is he's trying to find someone that can take over this chocolate factory. He's trying to pass his legacy on to someone as pure as he is. And his purity isn't about financial profits. It's about chocolate, right? And and the love of chocolate. And the only way he could do that is by being duplicitous. I don't think of him as a vengeful God. I don't think of him as an evil minion. I will say, to back up my horror story, world, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was a chocolate maker in real life. Uh, he was? Yep. Uh, Dean Coral, a.k.a. the Candyman, uh, he obviously owned and operated a candy factory in Houston. Oh, yeah. We really got into his story, the Candyman yeah. story and all the people he killed. That was a long pod. Was that on our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode? I think we did oh, talk yeah. about that. Yeah. That was dark. So there there has been this idea of like of weirdo creepos that have, uh, you know, gotten around uh, children's suites. And are you telling that- me also that millionaires who are isolated from the rest of humanity are are not normal people? <gasps> <laughs> but But OK, but no, to your point. Wonka likes purity, but what Wonka, I think, really likes even more than purity... Especially in his chocolate. ...is obedience. He wants obedience. So who can I trust to run the factory when I leave and take care of the Oompa Loompas for me? Not a grown-up. A grown-up would want to do everything his own way, not mine. That's why I decided a long time ago that I had to find a child. A very honest, loving child to whom I can tell all my most precious candy-making secrets. He wants to give his factory to somebody who will do exactly what he did. You know, so that's his thing. He's like, mm. I don't want adults coming in here because they might have their own ideas. They might put raisins in my Wonka bar. No. You know, I need a child. That's what he says literally. He says, I want a child who will do this exactly as I would do. But I think what he means is with love, right? If you can't follow a simple direction, hey, we're going to have a great day today just don't eat anything in this room. And then you do, like, where are your manners? What are you? 
you're a rude little boy or a rude little girl. Like I like there is something about that. It's like all he's looking for is obedience. Obedience. Don't eat. <laughs> don't no, do what I tell like, you not to do. But it's like, but like, <laughs> but it's the difference of coming into someone's house and asking for a drink, or going into someone's house and opening up the fridge and getting a drink. Now, by the way, if you've been there multiple times, open up the fridge. These people are walking inside the chocolate factory for the very first time, and they are taking liberties. Like, just listen to the person. And every time they did do, they get hurt. It's not obedience. It's safety. I think you're I think you're splitting pull apart Twizzlers at that. But OK, I mean, I will say, wow, by the way, the worst Twizzlers. Yeah, I'll agree with that. They're fun. I mean, they're fun to eat. They're, they're fun not... to pull apart. I don't like yeah. that straw. I, I I like the original Twizzler flavor. If you gave me that in the pull apart, I would be more excited about it. But still, yeah, give me that plain old like clear, or, clean wax flavor. Sour, and I say that with a sour straws now. I got, I can't make any bones about, oh, I love sour straws. Can we agree on that? Plain chocolate bars? Trash. Who likes a plain chocolate bar? No, no one does. No one does. No No one one does. does. What is your favorite chocolate bar? My favorite chocolate bar, I got to tell you, I've been really into Reese's Pieces lately. Uh, I I want a bar form. A bar. Bar Okay, bar form. I was going to say they've introduced some bars. I was in a moment of distress this week. I hadn't eaten in a long time. And I was like, I need to get a bottle of water and a snack. And the snack that I reached for was a chocolate bar whose name is Snickers. And a (laughs) Snickers is really that a Milky Way and a Twix are the ones that I will grab. A take five, also delicious. But that's like my top, that's like my top bar. But each one represents a different moment that I am in, that I need. Uh, What about you? Well, I do have a soft spot for whatchamacallits. Oh, one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. And there's a there's hard to a find first part of me that would really love the chunky bar if it had more raisins. I always feel like the mm. chunky bar doesn't have enough raisins. Again, Amy, you're referencing things that are not commonly found. Like you can find these at like boutique candy stores. Like <laughs> I haven't seen a whatchamacallit or a chunky bar in any common grocery store or even like a movie theater. Ever. I, I, like, since I was a child, uh, whatchamacallit was in the theater. But go ahead. Well, you know what I used to like? My dad had this favorite chocolate bar that like he would stockpile. Now I'm going to get real bespoke. He would stockpile this bar. I think it was called a Sky Bar. Mm. And it had four different flavors. It was like four segments of a bar. And so one was like a white marshmallow fluff and one Ooh, was wow. like a fudge and one was a peanut butter. And I think one was a caramel. Oh, I love and that. And so it was like, because I like diversity. When Me I eat too. A chocolate bar. And I, that's why I find most chocolate bars just horribly bland at a certain point. There's this chocolate bar I've always wanted to eat that's been discontinued, I think, before we were alive. No, always... I know what you're talking about. We've talked about this on the show, this chocolate the bar. Up? Yes. The or we've talked about it before. Yes. It, the, it, this is like the ultimate bar. I, I'm pulling it up right now. It had mint. Then it Oof. had a mint square, a nougat square, a butterscotch, a fudge, a coconut. Oh, yeah a buttercream and a caramel. The only thing I would want to do is I would want to swap out maybe the buttercream and replace it with like raspberry. And then I would be so happy. Well, here's my deal, Amy. If I had my druthers and I could only have one type of candy forever, I would go with the Whitman sampler because that really hits every, (laughs) every type of, uh, every type of chocolate I really do like. But to your point, I've been brainwashed uh, by television 
I believe that Snickers was like an energy bar, like Snickers. It really satisfies. So when I'm hungry, I reach for a Snickers. It's just a chocolate bar. It does nothing else. I love a Milky Way because I think it. I like that creaminess. I know we talked a little bit about this on the Quentin Tarantino episode. Yeah, that's just you still mental, the two of you. But I will say a take five bar kind of hits the spot of what you're talking about. That's we're talking about caramel. We're talking about chocolate. We're talking about peanuts. Uh, we're talking about pretzel. Oh, I should have those more. I only ever had one once in my life, but I am very big into pretzel. Yeah, so that that is it. I know, and you can hear us continue this conversation on the Quentin episode. I just, <laughs> uh, but I, amazingly, we get back into it. But I will ask you this: more on topic, do you have a favorite Wonka brand candy? Oh, yeah. I mean, Pixie Sticks. Wow, Pixie Sticks. That's not one that I would go for. I mean, I if I'm going to go for just a straight sugar intake in the Wonka verse, Fun Dip. You get that spoon, you lick it, you dip it in. Uh, but for me, like the the top Wonka-related treat had nothing to do with chocolate. It was nerds. I loved nerds. I love that you had a box split down the middle that had two different kinds of nerds. You can mix and match them. I grew into sprees later on, but I oh, like sprees. I always thought sprees were like the sophisticated one for very old people. Oh no, sprees were like amazingly. Deli- they, I love sprees. Sprees were like passed around in my school with reckless abandon because it, it was like a, it had the consistency of a mint, but with the flavor of a candy. Okay. How about this? Runts. No, never liked I, a runt. Oh, I love a runt. I love that runt gives you the option of banana. No, no, thank you. Don't need a, <laughs> don't need a banana. But what I want and what I do need is an everlasting gobstopper, one of the best candies ever. And I can't understand why this movie released a chocolate bar and not the secret item of the everlasting gobstopper. Like you make a movie where it's like, this is our secret candy. And that's not the first thing on the shelf. Everyone makes a chocolate bar. Why do we need to make a chocolate bar? And how did they not know that that chocolate was going to melt? I remember going, uh, when I went on a USO tour, we were, uh, we were deep in, in a war zone. And what the guys were always complaining about was they couldn't get candy that wouldn't melt. Like they had to figure out what was the best candy that could actually maintain its structural integrity all the way out into the desert. And, uh, you know, so you're going to get a lot more of these Wonka centric things like a nerds, like a gobstopper, like a runt. Uh, But I do think that like that was the mistake here. The gobstopper was the thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the Gobstopper. Like, one, clearly the idea of this candy in its platonic ideal form, literally everlasting, is so magical that a show whose people I actually deeply revile, you know, the show Pawn Stars, Mm -hmm. there is an episode of Pawn Stars where somebody brings in an original Willy Wonka everlasting Gobstopper prop. There are not a lot of these because they did not think this was an important movie. So they trashed basically every prop as soon as it was done. But the guy on Pawn Stars, who I think of as a jerk, absolutely loses his mind. Is it the everlasting gobstopper? Yeah. That's the real deal? I'm even getting chills holding it. It's like the Hope Diamond. (laughs) (laughs) So how much do you want for the gobstopper? Gosh. um, That is the centerpiece of the film, which if we sell that, that's definitely breaking up the aesthetics of the whole collection. So 
Um, I'm going to give you one price, and that's that. I, I got to stick with $100,000 for the gobstopper. Might be a crazy price for the everlasting gobstopper, but let's face it, it's the everlasting gobstopper. It is literally, in my mind, the greatest movie prop ever. And with that said, what Willy Wonka wants to do with this everlasting gobstopper, I find kind of radical. He's basically saying he wants to make a candy for poor kids like Charlie, for kids who cannot afford to go to the candy store where for some reason the candy guy just gives you all the candy for free anyways and like throws it into your hands. He wants to make a candy so perfect that poor people will never have to buy another candy ever again. Yes, it's socialistic candy. He's willing to put himself out of business to make children happy. And you are calling him a vengeful god? Well, yeah, because he's not appreciated, so therefore destroy and smite everybody. Like, the fact, he basically says flat out, like, I want this candy to be for the poor, and the very first person who's like, I want it, is Veruca. Of course he's going to send her to, like, the bowels of the furnace, the fiery pit, his literal hell, because it is harder for a rich girl to go through the eye of a needle than to deserve one of his everlasting gobstoppers. If we had a second more, that that would have been a really great, like we could have really crafted that analogy. The eye of the needle <laughs> should be something different. It is easier to send a girl through the heart of a pixie stick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is, I think, the interesting thing about this. This movie and Wizard of Oz are looking for pure-hearted kids, right? And they're not afraid of putting kids in danger, to kind of test their mettle. I mean, now I guess you can make the argument that, you know, the elements of Oz are putting Dorothy in danger, and that's maybe even a dream. It definitely is a dream. But here... But even in the real world, people are stealing her dog. Not right. cool. Well, her dog is, you know, her dog is disobedient. But I guess what I'm saying is there's something really triumphant to get from these movies if you're a kid. Could I make it through that? Oh my gosh, am I that? Right? Who do you identify with? And I would imagine that some kids probably say, oh, oh, I'm Mike TV or I'm this. And then they see Mike TV's demise or they see Veruca Salt's demise. And then maybe this gives them a moment to like realize like, oh, maybe I should be a little bit different. Maybe it should be a little bit better. I, I don't know. Do you think that there's an element of that or is everybody Charlie Buckets? Well, I hope everybody's not Charlie Buckets because to me, one of the flaws of this movie that I deeply love is that I can get very much on board with the first half of it, honestly. The first half is kind of like an, a Monty Python social satire on how awful the modern capitalistic world is. You've got, you know, American kids being so American. You've got Mike wanting a gun. That's what we all Hold it, here. I want to catch this. You like the killings, huh? What do you think life's all about? Mike, would you tell us this? Wait till I get a real one. Colt 45. Pop won't let me have one yet, will you, Pop? Not till you're 12, son. You've got newscasters, you know, just like huffing about this one kind of insequential in the grand scheme of things story rather than talk about anything that's actually happening in the news. You know, you've got modern day computer tech bros, you know, the future Elons of the world trying to like scam the system with their computers. We're about to witness the greatest miracle of the machine age. Based on the revolutionary computational law of probability, this machine will tell us the precise location of the three remaining golden tickets. (laughs) 
it says, I won't tell. That would be cheating. You've even got the fact that, like, adults in this universe really aren't safe. You know, when Charlie finds the ticket finally after, like, his, what, third, maybe I have the ticket now, psych out, it's terrifying. Like, he's surrounded by basically a zombie horde of adults, and, like, only one of them has the sense to tell him to get out of that screaming pile and run home before it looks like one of those adults is going to straight up steal his ticket. Charlie, run straight home and don't stop till you get there. So then my issue is with this movie is that in the second half of it, once we're in the factory, Charlie Buckets is kind of boring and I stop caring about him and I forget that he's even in the film. No, and I think that that is actually by design because he is, to your point, Amy, being quote unquote obedient. He's listening. He's walking around. He's going on this adventure. He's having a lovely time. The other kids are making it all about themselves. They're mucking up the machines. They're not listening to anything. They're just there with their eye on the prize. And we all know that they've all been seduced by this evil enemy of Willy Wonka, right? This person who is basically bribing them to steal as much information as they can, especially about the gobstopper. So they could live a life of financial freedom. Now, Willy Wonka's offering them a lifetime supply of chocolate, not money. So all these kids are motivated by that. And I think that they're mucking up the system because they're not there because they actually want to be there. They're there because they want celebrity. They're there because they want that money. They're there to steal this information. There's that one moment with the mom and Mike TV. She's like, keep your mouth shut and keep your eyes open or whatever she says to him to kind of, you know, let you know that they're in there to steal. They're becoming corporate spies. So I think the only way for Charlie Bucket to be, and probably why it works even better in the book is it's probably told through his eyes. Like he's seeing all this stuff. Like we are Charlie Bucket as we're watching this movie. We're in the background. And then, you know, we have our one or two moments where we kind of come up and obviously the whole ending is about us. We're the ones that don't, don't get killed. You know, actually, yeah, it really does make that case that none of these kids even care about the lifetime supply of chocolate. No. You know what, um, Violet is very flagrantly like, I only care about gum. Uh, well, Augustus would like it. Augustus would eat all the chocolate, but well, like. Augustus wants to eat it. He doesn't want to like, appreciate it. True. And that's the thing about Augustus. Like, he just wants to shovel it in his fucking mouth. He just wants to swill it. Yes. And we know that Veruca doesn't care because if she wanted a lifetime supply of chocolate, her dad would just buy her a lifetime supply of chocolate. He's just like standing over the factory workers watching them shell chocolate and they're throwing all the chocolate away because like she does not care at all about it. And I actually really, now that I'm a little older, love watching the Veruca factory scenes because she is just freaking awful, awful. And it is fascinating to have this scene right after we've even had like kind of this illusion. I mean, my God, I really love the actress playing Veruca. You know, her name is Julie Don Cole. She just goes for it. And in this scene, she's so funny. What's the matter with those twerps down there? Fuck 
for five days now, the entire flipping factory's been on the job. They haven't shelled a peanut in there since Monday. They've been shelling flaming chocolate bars from dawn to dusk. Make them work nights. Come along, come along, you girls. Put a jerk in it or you'll be out in your ears, every one of you. But listen to this. The first girl that finds a golden ticket gets a one-pound bonus in her pay packet. What do you think of that? And I want to say, I think it's fascinating that here we are. I think that seems like, what, 15 minutes into the movie? We're 15 minutes into a movie about candy, and we keep hearing about labor issues. We keep seeing them on screen. We've already even heard from this, like, earlier scene with Charlie and his grandpa that there's this mystery. Who's running the factory? Who's doing the factory for Willy Wonka? He locked the gates and vanished completely. And then suddenly... About three years later, the most amazing thing happened. The factory started working again, full blast. And more delicious candies were coming out than ever before. But the gates stayed locked so that no one, not even Mr. Slugworth, could steal them. But, Grandpa, someone must be helping Mr. Wonka work the factory. Thousands must be helping him. But who? Who are they? That is the biggest mystery of them all. I mean, is this film radicalizing? I don't think I was radicalized by it when I was a kid, but now I'm watching and I'm like, maybe I was. Well, I think that there's a couple things at play, right? When you look at this movie, the way they display being poor is really interesting because you see Charlie Buckets, he's not allowed to go inside that candy store because he doesn't have the money to. And when he does get his money for whatever he does for that gentleman... Uh, He uses it to buy bread for his family. And I love this weird detail, but like, you know, both uh, of his grandparents are bedridden, you know, and they're in like the living room. Yeah, four grandparents in one bed. And you see this like poverty stricken household. Their clothes are stained. What an extra awful detail. And, you know, the way that uh, Grandpa Joe says, you know, when... We're treating a loaf of bread like it's a banquet. And what I find so interesting about it is the way that they portray this contest, which anyone can win. You don't have to be rich, even though, you know, people are auctioning off at like Sotheby's, the last box of chocolate. And, you know, we have buying it. (laughs) Yes. Like everybody is a wife will not ransom her husband for their bars of chocolate. But what I love about this in this world where so much money is changing hands, this is a fair system. And again, we're talking about like, I guess on some level, socialism, right? Because anyone could win. Anyone can get it. And when Charlie opens that candy bar, it's not there. And he gets another candy bar. It's not there. But the the way that he looks at it, the way that he feels like this could be the moment that helps my family. And what is going to help this family? A, a lifetime supply of chocolate? Sure. But that moment is really special and the mom's like oh no he won't win he won't win and the and idea that like, grandpa you're raising up his hopes how dare you and grandpa joe's like no anyone can win and there is something really interesting about this and that again to go to this larger theme about willy wonka is trying to find the most pure of heart now 
simply because it's a contest, he's going to come up against a lot of people who are not there for the right reasons, just like the beloved show, The Bachelor. But uh, you could argue maybe he could find kids in a different way. But I do think that this moment is really interesting. Like, I love that hope. And I think we all have that hope. You know, whether it's like peeling off uh, a McDonald's Monopoly sticker on a on the back of a cup. I felt like that when I was a kid. I still feel like that today. Or doing a scratch off. Like, this might be it. This might be it. This hope that might get me to a different level or might give me this other opportunity. It, maybe it's getting a, a C-do. Whatever it is, like, we all have that hope. And and I just think they captured that really interestingly. They do because on the one hand, they have that teacher breaking down percentage and being like, you opened two bars. I, I can't, can't even, even calculate that percent. Yes. It's too small. Uh, you know, and you're aware that like the people who open more bars, who have the money to open more bars are far more likely to win. Like it's very clear about all of that. And by the way, the girl who says she must have opened up around 100 that is the young girl, uh, Mel Stewart's daughter, who was like, you have to make this movie. So we gave her that little cameo in the film. But so we're aware that the world is stacked against him. And yet you're right. A bar is a bar. A bar is a bar. And it could happen. But I do want to ask, is this contest a little bit rigged? Because a kid from the town, a kid from that town wins? Really? 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 Like, I mean, is there some sort of world where like, Wonka planted the quarter in the gutter or had his minion plant the quarter in a gutter because he really wanted Charlie Buckets to win. I apologize that I keep calling him Charlie Buckets. I know it's Charlie Bucket, but there is a player in the Miami Heat that I only ever called Jimmy Buckets. Jimmy Buckets. And it's just a habit at this point. I think I called him Charlie Buckets a bunch. <laughs> but yeah, like, is it, do you think he was like, all these kids suck? Because he's clearly like reading the newspaper about who's winning. He knows a lot about Charlie's family when he wins. Do you think he's like, slip him this one? But I guess he has no control over what he buys in the candy shop, but still, man. It's interesting because I think that would go against the story. You know, he manufactured all these bars, sent them all across the world. And, you know, he will see a sampling of the world this way. And he does. Like, Veruca Salt is rich. Charlie Bucket is poor. Mike TV... Likes TV. He doesn't seem rich, poor, or anything. He's just middle class and he's violent. Yes. And Augustus Gloop is just a kid who eats a lot of different stuff. Like, I think it's like just throwing out a very wide net. And maybe he was able to put them in different distribution arms to make sure it went across the world. But why shouldn't somebody down the block also be able to get to the Wonka factory? I mean, it should be, it's inclusive. It's fully inclusive. Now, what does he get when he sends out that giant, you know, uh, contest and list, he does pull in, I think, like I said earlier, people who represent deadly sins. Like, you know, it's like gluttony, greed, sloth, envy, pride, all those things kind of all come together. I don't think there's any lust in there. I mean, I guess maybe you could say Augustus Gloop lusts after food and gluttony and lust are together. I mean, the director, Mel Stewart, has said that all the young girls had crushes for the first time and they all had crushes on Peter Ostrom, who played Charlie. And that once he invited one of them to an Oktoberfest, but then her parents wouldn't let her know if she could go. So then he invited the other one to Oktoberfest. Oh, wow. Drama. Drama. But, um, I mean, this whole movie is a, a moral. It's a moralistic tale. It's like it. And that's why I feel like the similarities to horror really are front and center. Like you can just ratchet up some things here and it becomes a lot 
more terrifying. But the truth is, is like these Oompa Loompas sing these songs about, you know, yes, these kids are a brat, but also their parents are a problem too. It's like, it's not just kids are awful. It's like kids are awful because they have awful parents and they live in an awful society. Like, but everything here is immoral. Like if you listen, if you're wise, if you don't steal, if you are patient, like it, they are these nursery rhymes, but oftentimes, you know, when we hear this, like Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, like Jack broke his fucking head. Right. Like that's like, you know, like, you know, and the, and, and all these nursery rhymes that we learn as a kid are violent. They're weird. You know, it's like you got Hansel and Gretel, another dark one. Right. You got these kids, which is going to eat them. Like we grew up on these fairy tales of kids being put in mortal danger and using their wits to survive and escape and bad kids being killed. And this is just doing that on a, on a grander scale in a really beautiful environment. Like this is gorgeous. Like you're killing people in Disneyland. <laughs> and it's true. Doesn't Disneyland actually have like a, a morgue underneath Disneyland because people do die at Disneyland? You are. No, they don't have a morgue under Disneyland. They don't often pronounce people dead. That's right. That's what it is. They get them off the campus. Premises. Yes. In the, so they're like nobody died at Disneyland. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's a very tricky uh, situation. But yeah, you're right about the parents here, though. Like, it is so much. You see how the parents have shaped each of these kids. It's not like any of the kids is just a menace on their own. And it's a whole family tree of it. You know, Veruca is a nightmare. And yes, it's her dad is like indulging her and her dad gets like the point, the pointed end of the stick about being the villain. But whenever we see Veruca Salt's mom, her mom is just like, well, you got to make kids happy. Doesn't really care. Not checking out, not parenting her. But maybe it, is Willy Wonka the best dad then? Because is Willy Wonka saying like, hey, it's not about obedience. It's about like, be humble, be honest, be caring. Oh, and obedience. And obedience. I mean, yeah, he's, like, he's come singing on. to them. No, come on. I mean, literally, he's singing to them about imagination. Love, love the imagination song. But what I especially love about the way that it's like staged and put together is that he's carrying his cane the whole time and whipping the kids to follow his path. And they cannot walk faster than him. They must walk at his pace. And every time we hear that, like, it just sounds like this kung fu movie bursts into the musical number, and I love it. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. He's training them. Come on. I train my cat. He's training them. Not so okay. different. Okay, but let you know, I want to talk about imagination too, because I love this idea. He is an enigma, you know, from the minute he walks out, like you said, and he does that, that amazing flip. We don't know what to think of him. Is he injured? Is he fresh? Is he lying? Is he mean? Is he nice? He's playing it all. And the one thing that's consistent is like, he's forcing these kids to think like at one point, she's like, what is a snozberry? There's no such thing as a snozberry. And he, and he looks at her and he's like, we are the dreamers. Like, don't limit yourself by what you know, right? And everything has been told. Yeah, he's quoting Shakespeare and poetry to them the whole time. And off, and it's off a lot of the times. You know, it's like, it's not a Rachmaninoff <laughs> thing. That isn't exactly from Shakespeare. He's forcing people to question what they've learned. Well, and he's doing it in such a way that you can't get a grip on him. Like one of my favorite Gene Wilder line deliveries is when Violet is like, that's gum. And he's like, 
wrong. But he says it with such joy yes. that you think that it doesn't sound negative. But then at the same time, it is gone. Finito. That's all. That's all. Don't you know what this is? My gum, it's gum. Wrong. It's the most amazing, fabulous, sensational gum in the whole world. I mean, can we just talk about what a, a mind fuck that is? He's lying to her, but he's not. But he's saying it so cheerfully. And what is happening? It is gum. It is actually gum. Why is he lying to her? Well, I think he just wants to keep people on their toes. And, you know, to him, nothing is just gum. It's a wonkavator. It's not an elevator. You know, that gum is not gum. Gum is, we know what gum is. That's a three-course dinner, right? Like, he doesn't want to be in the world where everything is black and white. And... You know, I think that there's like a, a, another thing here, too, where it's like he's surrounded by stupid people. And what he does all the time is smile and let them have their own demise. It's like, go ahead, idiot. Yeah, it's not gum. But you're not going to listen to me to tell you what it is and where my problems are with it. So you're going to put it in your mouth and eat it. Go ahead. Yeah, right. It, like almost like the way he just sort of gives up. When he's yeah. trying so hard to keep Augustus from like jumping in the river. He yeah. was like, you hear legitimate terror in his voice, I think, for a little bit. I think this is like the first and one of the first and only times that you hear Wonka actually be real. Be like, do not do that. And then you hear him give up. Oh, well, uh, Augustus, please don't do that. My chocolate must never be touched by human hands. Please don't do that. Don't do that. You're contaminating my entire river. Please, I beg you, Augustus. My chocolate. My chocolate. Help. My beautiful chocolate. Help. Don't just stand there. Do something. Help. Please. Murder. But I think that that's what's so interesting is like, I think that Willy Wonka has been in this castle, this chocolate factory for a long time. And immediately he's starting to see all the things that he saw before he shut it down and locked himself away from society. Immediately he's seeing it all once again. And the tour... Who knows what the tour is? He is getting harsher and harsher as it goes. He goes from being weird and eccentric to being mean. So at the end, he's so kind of like put off, like, go ahead. Like, you know, he he's done. Like, he's like no one's learned from their lessons. All these kids have seen other kids. Once you see Augustus Gloop get sucked up that tube and you hear he's in a trash compactor, like, if I'm a kid, I'm like, um, thanks. I'm not going to touch a goddamn thing until you tell me <laughs> it. Right. Like, but every one of these kids thinks, and this is like this pride. They think they can go off and do something else. And I do think it's even Charlie. Well, Charlie, I think does something interesting because really it's the grandfather who forces Charlie to make that choice. Not Charlie. Actually, that's true. You're right. You know, it is the grandpa's idea. And and the grandfather, Charlie's like, no, no, we're not supposed to do that. And it's also at the end, Charlie's idea to give over the gobstopper. What I love about it is we don't really wrestle with it. I don't think that Charlie would ever have stolen the gobstopper. I mean, he's handed the gobstopper. Like, right. Well, like, I think it, it's it, all like, a trick. Is, it's such a deliberate taunt. Here you go. Let's see what you do. Well, he wants, I mean, because obviously the person who has made him this offer to do this recon works for him. So he's going to get yeah. it back. He wants, he, I think that Willie wants to believe in humanity but 
he has set up some tests to make sure that his heart doesn't just believe in someone right away. Because when he meets these kids, he has a dossier on them. He knows everything about them. Slugworth knows everything and has given him this idea. So I believe that there's a part of it of, let me tempt every one of these kids and let's see what happens. Maybe maybe Charlie's the only one who got offered all that money. Maybe Veruca Salt got offered something different. Like That's you true, because what does she care about money? Exactly. So they could have been very specific in how they were going to test these kids. I mean, because he does egg them on. Like in that early scene with the contract and all the adults are like hemming and hawing, I don't know if we should sign this contract. When Veruca Salt, who is the first one to kind of break, like grabs the quill, she's like, I'm going in. He goes, nicely handled. You know, like go ahead, Veruca, be a menace. Can't wait, bring it on. And I have to say, I still do love Veruca. I mean, she's, there's a way of, you know, in this world of girl bossing that I kind of hate and think has gotten like way over the top and too toxic. She's a queen girl boss. She wants the world. Like, why not? You know? But like, yeah. But she could have had the world if she actually (laughs) wanted to share the world. And I think that that's another thing too. It's like, why does it have to be so solitary? Like, you know, the way that she treats her father who bends over backwards for her, the way that she wants everything that Willy Wonka has, like with no respect or admiration for how he even got it. It's really interesting to me. It's like, you know, and and I think we we pride ourselves in in our world of like lone thinkers and lone inventors. But the truth is, is like, it's a collaboration. Like I was talking to somebody else the other day about this. Like you ever see a film title where it's like a film by. Oh yeah. And it's like, you know, and that's a really aggressive title because a film is by everyone. Everyone who's been a part of it, the writer, the director, the actors, the 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 set design, the makeup, the every, you know, um, it's like it's not just a singular process. And I think Veruca Salt represents that idea of like wanting everything regardless of you know what, even knowing what it does. That's true. I But I love her. I love her character. And I think she's amazing. I mean, I could love her. I just don't think that she's appropriately. I don't think that she should be running a chocolate factory. <laughs> No, I don't think so either. But I do want to jump back to like when grandpa convinces Charlie to misbehave and they like drink the fizzy soda, they float up to the roof, they're about to get shredded into bits. Grandpa comes up with the idea to burp and then there's a long series of them burping. You've got to burp, Charlie. It's the only way. boy, Burp again. boy, Come on. I wanted to point this out because just last week we were, like, talking about how Blazing Saddles, major example of flatulence, only beaten to the punch by Ozu. I tried to find the answer to the question about the, what is the first use of burping in cinema? Couldn't find it. All of my Google searches have failed. If anybody knows the answer of the first burp, I would really like to hear it. I did realize that early on in our podcast history, Paul, we covered a film that had an early burp, Ben-Hur. Here is Ben-Hur in a burping scene. <laughs> Was the food not to your liking? Indeed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, I will say that this burping scene also uh, 
infuriated Rodal. He did not like this. He disowned, you know, he disowned the film overall, but really did not like the fizzy lifting drink scene. And, you know, he was very, I don't know why that scene, like the two biggest things that he was upset about were obviously the deviations in the plot, uh, the idea that Slugworth was like, who was a minor character was turned into a spy, but this fizzy lifting drink scene, he really felt like that was not in the spirit of his book. I mean, I have to say, there is something very childish in my heart that cringes every single time Charlie burps and then smiles. It really freaks me out. I don't. I know he's smiling because he's saving his life, but I hate the way he burps and smiles. It makes me immediately, I think, flash back to like kids who grossed the hell out of me when I was a kid in the cafeteria. Is that too much? Maybe it is too much. I wonder then, like, how Roald Dahl felt about the fact that, like, they make even more gas jokes later on with, like, the different machines, the Wonka mobile, which if you were not even, like, watching the film, just listening to it, you'd almost think it was Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. I mean... That's like a robot fart right there. Beautiful robot farts. That's like, uh, that's like I feel like something you would see on like the Conan O'Brien show. You know, it's interesting because, you know, Rodal was truly a candy guinea pig. Did you know this? Like when no. he grew up, yes, this entire story was actually based on something that happened to him when he was a kid. Rodal and his classmates were willing guinea pigs for Cadbury. Cadbury, obviously like the Hershey's of... Europe or at least the UK, and he would taste all these different types of chocolates. So this is where the idea was born. He literally was like a a taste tester for a chocolate company. Whoa, so he could have been an early person to taste a Cadbury mini egg? Yeah, maybe. Man, how come some kids have all the luck? <laughs> the everlasting gobstopper and the center of a Cadbury egg, the creamy one, is, a, is the same. It's got like three or four rings in there. Gosh. I mean, I have all these like really strong memories of the town that I grew up in from like one until four in Saginaw, Michigan, having a candy shop where my parents would let me walk and I could buy giant pixie sticks and the joy I felt like that. But man, I'm so jealous of living outside of a candy factory. I think it would get old quick. I mean, because what? honestly, Amy, you're just saying that to protect yourself. Uh, maybe, but just think about it like this. In that one amazing set, and this movie has amazing sets once you're inside. The, I mean, they're all pretty impressive, but the Chocolate Factory set, the first one with the river of chocolate, right? That beautiful, beautiful set, uh, you know, had a true working chocolate waterfall, all right? It, it is all there, 150,000 gallons of water, real chocolate and cream, um, and it smelled terrible. Apparently, it was awful to shoot in because it would spoil every day. So they were basically in this ter- like this, you know, rotten cream chocolate world. So I imagine <sighs> being outside of a, a food factory of any kind is going to be uh, a little rough. You know, the head construction boss, by the way, was a guy named Hank Winans. And I'm saying this only because Hank Winans, trifecta here, he also did the sets for Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Do, 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 oh, do, do, wow. Do, do. And and this is so interesting because this is a time where I think this movie is truly made by these worlds. Like these sets on each one of these movies are really so 
iconic, you know, and you can kind of see the overlap, you know, from the end of Blazing Saddles and that amazing dance number, you know, that like that kind of set looking to Willy Wonka's set. And there's something so wonderful about like the poverty stricken set with the original young Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, there, there's a beautiful, there's so much artistry on display here. And there's so many things that are going on that they're doing new things. Like, like I love the, the way that they do the songs with the Oompa Loompas. They, I feel like they're like electric, like electric wave art. It's like, you know, the, the words kind of, it's like Dr. Phoebe's, the art is being drawn on a wavelength. You know, it looks like that. Yeah. And I feel like there was just such an investment from everybody into the look of this. Like, Somebody turned up a letter from Gene Wilder about his costume, where when he first saw like a sketch of the costume for Willy Wonka, he had some issues with it. Very kindly. He had a problem with the fact that like Willy Wonka's pants, his original ones were slime green. And it was it was his idea that they should be sand colored, as he put it, because he said, you know, in his words, I don't think of Willy as an eccentric who holds on to his 1912 dandy Sunday suit and wears it in 1970 rather just as an eccentric. There's no telling what he'll do, where he ever found his getup, except that it strangely fits him. He calls him a vain man who knows colors that suit him, yet with all his oddity has strangely good taste. And so he fought to make sure that Willy Wonka didn't look too much like the Joker or something like that. He actually suggested that the hat that he's wearing, not only should it be a little shorter, which they agreed to, but he wanted it to have a little blue ribbon around the hat band because he was like, that would say that Wonka knows how to bring out his blue eyes. You know, my beautiful blue eyes, in essence. And he should also have a blue bow tie, also bringing out the eyes. And the costume designer overruled him on that, but did give him the pants. You know, I I, I love that because when I watch this movie, I, I can't think of anybody else to play this part. It's a very tricky part to play. Gene Wilder has these beautiful eyes, and there's that kind of iconic image of him with his fist and his cheek and his head kind of slanted it like yeah <laughs> right and you buy the fact that he is a loving person i think gene wilder is a loving person but i also feel like gene wilder could be very intense and very passionate about things so much so that when they're doing that scene in the tunnel the actors in the scene with him think that he is legitimately going crazy from being in the tunnel. That performance, that scariness, again, going back to the horror nature of this movie, he's playing these very different levels. And I and I really think that if you went like uh, an inch in one other direction, you're going to get somebody who seems too mean. Or you're going to go an inch in another direction, you're going to get somebody who seems too eccentric. And I think that you obviously see that with Johnny Depp. You know, that's Tim Burton. Ugh. That's Johnny Depp. I hate that performance. I hate it. I hate it. Not only do I hate his voice, I hate how, like, squeaky, light, it's look, gross. saccharine it is. I hate, like, oh, I hate that it even has to, get, like, tell us more about his own backstory. If you hate dumb so much, why do you make it? Once again, you really shouldn't mumble because it's kind of starting to bum me out. Can you remember the first candy you ever ate? Now. In fact, Willy Wonka did remember the first candy he ever ate. Oh, it's terrible. You go to these flashbacks, you learn that Willy Wonka's dad was a dentist. Like, who cares? And his dad gave him a hard time about Halloween candy. Caramels. They'd get stuck in your braces, wouldn't they? Lollipops. 
what to be called cavities on a stick. I don't know where to begin there. I don't know if you go the giant golden goose or the golden egg. What came first? It's Tim Burton. It's it, it. It also is Johnny Depp. And I feel like they, you don't need to put that much spin on it. Like there's a term I call the hat on a hat. And that is a hat on a hat. Gene Wilder to me feels like an eccentric. He doesn't feel out of this world, even though he is bizarre. It seems like he's fucking with you, but he also can have a good time. Now, everybody wanted to play this part. I mean, originally... They wanted Joel Grey to play it, but they never actually offered it to him because he wasn't imposing enough physically. Yeah, they said that he was only five foot five, and so he wasn't that much taller than the kids. They needed somebody who could tower over them enough, and Gene Wilder's 5'10". And I will say that uh, Joel Grey does have that same kind of thing that Gene Wilder has, right? Then it goes to, like, Roald Dahl wanted Spike Milligan, you know, a, a British comedian. Uh, and then Peter Sellers is like, I want to do this. Please let me do this. You know, it, like, literally... Everyone came out of the woodwork, Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, all the members of Monty Python. I think everyone saw what was so interesting about this character. But I think as we kind of look at Gene Wilder over these three films, what Gene Wilder kind of brings to every one of these films is that dramatic side of him. This serious actor who could do comedy. And I think here he's not trying to be funny. He's embodying fully this character, which goes right to show you, like you said, when Gene Wilder read the book, he was already thinking, not like, how can I fuck with the kids? Like, how can I embody this character? And that one simple move, that Kane move, is the entire character summed up right there. And again, you're talking about his wardrobe, everything. Like, he wanted to make this character real. And I think... Johnny Depp's character is not real, but no. it's hard to be real in a Tim Burton movie. But this character is real and exists in a world that is a little heightened, but it's not obscenely heightened. Like he's he's up, he's at the same level as anybody else in this movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the choices that the director does that kind of synergizes his world of coming from making documentaries about the Nazis. Which, by the way, like one of his random asides, he's like, I did two things here that I think were too intelligent for people to get or too arcane, maybe. You right. know, one is what we were talking about where he like has a little bit of a musical passcode. And then Mike TV's mom was like, Rachmaninoff. And he's like, oh, it's actually Mozart. Nobody knew that I should have just done Beethoven's Fifth. And then everybody would know that like it's about the mom being a nitwit. And then the other bit is like when he shows the winner in Paraguay. Mm-hmm. Like the stealth joke about it is that like the face he shows as the person who won in Paraguay was a long-lost Nazi, this guy Martin Borman. He was Hitler's secretary. At that point in 1971, his body was still missing. They thought maybe he was alive and living in South America, like a lot of Nazis. Nobody got that that was like Hitler's secretary, probably too subtle, maybe should have done that differently. But that said, the way he synergizes his like world of documentary of Nazis and making a random kids film is that he like used a lot of moments to film it sort of like a documentary for the kids, you know, like not showing them what the Candyland was going to look like until they opened the door and walked into it for the first time, not telling them that, you know, Gene Wilder was going to do this flip so they would all have this natural element of surprise. And I think in the, in the scariest and most emotional moment, when Charlie learns that he's not going to get a lifetime of, of chocolate, they played this scene, you know, they did some dialogue. Gene Wilder played it pretty cool. But then when they recorded it for the, on camera, Gene Wilder flipped out to get that look of just absolute shock on Charlie's face. Wrong! 
Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in this photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc., Fax mentis incendium gloria calpum, etc., etc., memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. And that kind of perfectly ties into what I was mentioning earlier, that the kids didn't know what to get from him, right? And I think I love that. And I, and I do think this is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, this is a movie about... Willy Wonka and Willy Wonka's goal, even though we don't meet him early on. Now, why is it called Willy Wonka and not Charlie and Chocolate Factory? This is really interesting, right? Because there's a lot of different issues here. The big, someone will tell you, oh, it was marketing that made us change the name. But the truth is that Charlie was a term that was used on plantations, back in the day as like the 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 owner of the plantation was often called like Charlie and so they There's changed that the phrase master charlie master <laughs> charlie right so they they wanted to kind of move themselves away from that like having it be like charlie and chocolate factory and yeah it's almost like how i think in 2023 you wouldn't have a title with karen in it karen and the chocolate factory Loaded, but loaded in a different way, but loaded in ways that still codify like kind of racism unpleasantness and i also think part of that thing about you know is chocolate in the title as well. So it felt like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It it connoted a racial idea like, oh, wait, what what are you trying to say? And this is all all at the behest of Afro-American groups who didn't want this title out there. You know, and and racial concerns also dictated another big change in the film as well. The Oompa Loompas, you know, in the early versions of the novel and the illustrations in the novel, they were black African pygmies. And of course, like the NAACP protested, you know, that these look like Willy Wonka has slaves. Like, this is not, what are we doing here? So the film's production team took it upon themselves to depict the Oompa Loompas as having orange skin and really kind of separating them from that fact. It's like there is just so much happening behind the scenes in this movie from top to finish. And I think that that's like why... This movie, to me, stands out as like a children's picture from this era of a children's picture from my life, because this was just very much a movie that I watched as a kid, too, is that it it feels off. It feels like it hatched from a completely different egg than most other children's entertainment. I mean, it is a movie that, you know, did not have movie executives who thought they knew how the studio business and movies were run on set telling them what kind of movie to make. You know, it feels almost like expensive outsider art we've done a lot of like outsider films that feel like low and strange and weird and cheap this is not an expensive movie but it feels outsidery in that same regard where there wasn't anybody being like you're gonna scare kids if you do that this is too much what are you doing you know when i think about this movie and i think you're right i think this like interesting voice was behind this movie an interesting voice making a kid's film that I think was more in line with the fables that we grew up with. Weird, you know, dark. It's it going back to what I said before about Hansel and Gretel. I think about the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, the Dr. Seuss movie. It's so cool and so eclectic. We spent a lot of time last week talking about Blazing Saddles. Could you make that movie again? Who cares about that debate? I would argue you can't make 
Home Alone again, even though they did make Home Alone again, because they would never put kids in this kind of danger. And listen to these movies, like uh, like these old movies that we were out when we were kids. It's like movies like The Bad News Bears. You know, uh, you have movies like The Dark Crystal, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Labyrinth. You know, these are weird fucking movies, you know, that never-ending story. These aren't the traditional things that we've gotten now. Like now I think that kids' movies are very much put through a very uh, fine lens and we get something that is varying qualities. You know, you can have your upper echelon stuff like Lego Movie and... and uh, but then you have like just stuff that is hitting all the same beats, but just doing it kind of poorly. We don't have like this idea of kids' movies just being wacko and weird and unsafe and dangerous. And I miss that. I agree. The new Matilda is one of the only ones I can think of that feels a little dangerous in in a large cartoony way, but it's so fun. And the new Matilda, which my son actually just performed in Matilda Jr. at his school last week, and it was so wonderful. It was probably one of the best things ever, is a stage show, you know, a Broadway musical. It wasn't written for kids. And I will even go as far as to say like Wizard of Oz is close to this as well. But I feel like if we're sending anything up to space, I would have a battle between these two. Wizard of Oz definitely wins with the music. But these two are really, I think, important movies. And I think there's a lot of great ones that have been made after it too. But this is, I think, just as important as Wizard of Oz in my opinion. Oh man, that's hard. I mean, I love Wizard of Oz. But that said, I love, 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 love Wonka. What's interesting is I feel like both of them almost use the same accidental template to become so known for generations. You know, Wizard of Oz, very much like a TV movie. Like TV made that movie exist by turning it into a special event, having it on so infrequently that like Wizard of Oz night, massive deal of the year. Willy Wonka inadvertently did the same thing. Like nobody cared about this movie. You know, when Paramount didn't renew it, they sold the rights to distribute the film to Warner Brother for cheap. Warner Brother didn't care. They would just occasionally throw it on television. The very first time that they played it on television, actually, though, was against the Super Bowl. They figured it was like the cheapest, easiest time to just throw this movie on because everybody's going to be watching the Super Bowl. So why not have it on a different channel? And turns out all the kids who don't care about football were watching Willy Wonka that night. And that's one of the things that started to move the needle on this kids seeing Willy Wonka on television ratings going being really good for it on television. And then like those kids loving this strange movie that they came across on TV And then when they finally like agitate for it to be like put onto VHS in the early 80s, just boom, everybody was like, I need to prove that this movie exists. I need to watch this movie over and over again. It's so strange. And then, you know, we came of age and it was just like, yeah, standard, amazing, great movie. I guess my question is, are there films that are untouchable? I would put this one up there because who could even do anything worth supplanting this performance of Gene Wilder? I, I don't see the point in even trying, to be honest. You know, and and that's maybe the reason for the season, right? Like, we're talking here about Gene Wilder and what makes him so special. And I think when we look at Young Frankenstein, Willy Wonka, and Blazing Saddles, there are three iconic parts that he portrayed. They're all a little different, but they all share a very similar DNA. And I think that Blazing Saddles may not be as interesting without him to play off Cleavon Little. You know, if it's if it is this John Wayne type of cowboy, 
you know, and young Frankenstein who can capture that manic energy. Gene Wilder is an interesting guy because he's a leading man who could have been a star in any generation, black and white, cowboy times, and then this like weird 70s time. Like he is really an incredibly versatile leading man. And you don't often find that. You don't often find a leading man that can morph his style. He's a leading man who's a character actor. And I think that is the secret of Gene Wilder. And we haven't even talked about the producers, but I think over these three films, the reason why you can't remake these or they wouldn't be as good without is because a lot of the Gene Wilder stamp on it. These are all very strong acting choices that I think make every one of these films incredibly different. I agree. And also, just one more yes and to that, Gene Wilder had such a protectiveness over his characters that I really love, not just even in that letter about his costuming, but, you know, in the last couple of years of his life before he died in 2016, he had Alzheimer's and he didn't tell the public about it because he was really worried about that moment when he'd be walking down the street a kid would recognize him from Wonka, you know, and that would happen all the time. Kids would recognize him from Wonka because he he actually kind of looked the same forever, you know? He looked old when he was young. He looked young when he was old. And he was so worried about this moment that he could picture where a kid would see him across the street, tug on his dad's sleeve and be like, look, it's Wonka. And then the dad would say, don't bother him, he's sick. And he didn't want the dad to put that damper on the little kid's excitement to see him. And so he never told anybody that he was sick. And then he and then he passed. And then only after that was were people able to find out like why he kept that to himself. But that protectiveness over the joy his character brought to little kids 40 years later is just beautiful. I love that. And he wasn't also afraid to speak out about how he didn't like the remake either. <laughs> I, I, I will uh, I will say one other thing to you. It actually reminds me of the story that I heard after we recorded Young Frankenstein. Somebody, a a friend of a friend, or I heard this from somewhere, I'm just going to make it my own. A friend of my dad's, not a friend of my dad's, uh, saw Gene Wilder in San Francisco when he was shooting uh, that movie, uh, Woman in Red. And he was like, oh, "Oh, it's you. And he can't remember what he's been. And he's like, Dr. Frankenstein. And he's like, Dr. Frankenstein. And I just love that he embraced this older man who was just so excited to see him and then like played right into it and like adopted the character voice. I just love that he did that. And he still, you know, with that diagnosis was pretty outspoken because he did come out against the remake of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, I think he was right. Uh, You know, I think he was like, why are you doing that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like he was, you know, I think rightly so, just like, no. Don't do it. And, you know, just, I think the kid actors are amazing, but, you know, all these kids kind of were kind of plucked in and, and put into this movie and and that was it. Yeah, from what I heard, uh, the kid who plays Charlie became like a veterinarian who specializes in cows. Augustus Gloop became like a tax attorney. Well, you know, the, the thing with Charlie Bucket is that he was so overwhelmed by the response to the film that he didn't know what to do. Like, he went out and bought a horse. That was his big purchase. And then, yeah, became a vet, which is so interesting. Like, he, it was too much for him. He did audition for Equus, which he did not get, but I thought that was interesting, maybe because of a love of horse or animals. <laughs> but also weird if for a love of horse and animals. Yeah. And the reason why there has never been a sequel, and this movie does end in an interesting way. I love that last line. Did you ever hear the story about the man who wished for everything he ever wanted? 
he lived happily ever after. And that's how the movie ends. I love that ending. It's such a different, you know, for a guy who is constantly giving you a darker side of life, you see this joy of Willy Wonka at the end in this glass elevator. It's beautiful. Uh, and David Selzer came up with that line in three minutes, I think, over uh, the phone. Basically, they're shooting it. And the director was like, we can't just end this on the grandpa going, yippee. We need another line. We need another line. We need another line. And like, he called Seltzer up and he's like, you've got three minutes. Give me something. Wow. I love that. And I love that line. And it really does underscore, I think, the entire movie, you know, which is a more capitalist energy from a whole socialist film. But whatever, uh, I will say that the reason why there is no sequel, the reason why we don't see these characters again is because Roald Dahl would not sell the rights to the, the books uh, after he hated what they did to him here. Because I do ask that question. I, as a kid, was hoping, will they make another movie? No, they never will because book rights. And I didn't understand that when I was a child. Well, and it's weird because like the book after this is The Great Glass Elevator. And it's like, they go to space. They meet the president. They fight vernicious knids. There's almost no candy talk. Maybe it's for the best. Maybe, yeah. I think I think that this is a good one and done uh, movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Wonka is now a part of life still. I mean, obviously, just because it's owned by a big giant company. Well, but, not anymore, uh, like because Nestle bought it and then they shut it all down. Like they tried. Okay. You remember they tried to bring back like the Wonka bars ten years ago and then gave up because who cares and now like a company named ferrara owns the rights to the wonka candies so they're the people who are making the sweet tarts and the nerds and the gobstoppers and they also have like rescued other old candies they rescued like lemon heads and red hots and fruit stipe, striped gum and so basically caramels. all they're the kind misfit of, like, candies all the misfit candy toys to which i want to say thank you for that i'm glad they still exist <laughs> Maybe now I'm old and sophisticated enough to eat a spree. Well, I think you'd love it. You know, Amy, it was wonderful to go into this world of a chocolate factory with you. And I was wondering if you would like to come with me now and go under the sea. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know that we do this every now and then when a movie comes out and we've talked about remakes and why are they remaking a movie that doesn't need to be remade? Well, that's a good question. And I think one that we can ask next week when we sit down to watch the original Disney classic, The Little Mermaid, uh, which is coming out in theaters very soon. And why not get acquainted with it? This is a this is a little bit of a hole in my Disney uh, knowledge. Like this is one that I don't have a cultural fascination with. Uh, are you a Little Mermaid person? Oh, yes, I know very much. I think he even had like the McDonald's Happy Meal toy. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to talk about it with you. You can get Little Mermaid wherever it is streaming, which is in a lot of places probably owned all by Disney. Uh, but here, take a listen to the trailer. For over 50 years, Walt Disney has turned classic stories into classic animated motion pictures. Now the tradition continues as one of the world's greatest stories becomes the newest Disney motion picture classic. The Little Mermaid. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun. It's the story of Ariel, a beautiful young mermaid who wants to become human. He's very handsome, isn't he? I don't know, he looks kind of hairy and slobbery to me. Not that one. The other one. And she'll strike a bargain with a powerful sea witch. Have we got a deal? To make her dream come true. What I want from you is... Your voice. My voice? You've got it, sweet cakes. I've been turned into a human. 
Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the Unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Thank you.